I'm Paul Champoli, News Director at APPA. Our guest in this episode is Greg Phipps. In early November, the Board of Commissioners for the Reading Municipal Light Department, a Massachusetts public power utility, unanimously voted for Greg to be the next RMLD General Manager after serving as Interim General Manager since July. Greg, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Welcome to be here, Paul. Great. So, um, Greg, just to kick things off, I wanted to focus uh, our initial part of our conversation on your tenure as the interim GM. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me in terms of we actually are, are running a story about um, the announcement in tomorrow's newsletter. One of the things that jumped out at me is the fact that the board cited uh, your successes in several areas, including fostering a positive workplace culture, uh, securing a new site for a new sub- substation, and building relationships with key people across the communities in the utility service territory. Could you provide additional details on these successes? Yeah, sure. I think uh, the key thing starts with that very first point, which is the positive workplace culture. And the the key piece that, uh, so I have been here for about two years. Uh, my position prior to being the interim general manager was the director of integrated resources. So many of the lessons that I learned um, in IRD, integrated resources, we applied more broadly. Um, and a lot of them come down to communication, communication amongst the team members. I mean, literally an open door policy. Uh, My door, uh, whether I was uh, acting in my role as the director of IRD or now, or during my time acting as the interim general manager, the door is always open. People could come by, touch base with me. But equally important, um, I made a point of trying to circulate through the organization, touching base with the people, getting a sense of what uh, critical issues that they were dealing with, getting a sense of what was happening for them on the job. It helped provide me with a feedback mechanisms of things that I could address or fix or be aware of. At the same time, it gave me an opportunity to share the vision of, uh, I'll call it vision casting, of where RMLD or Ready Municipal Light is going. As most of your listeners know, the energy world is in the middle of a massive, and I mean seismic, massive change. So the way we used to do things, there are many things that we're going to uh, to adapt, modify, new things that we're going to be working on will become much more data-centric. But I, I, you know, back to your point in terms of the culture, the positive culture is a lot of uh, two-way communication, um, not only between me and the rest of the organization, but amongst the team members of the organization. Um, a lot more meetings where we have different departments coming together. Um, we've had a series of all-hands meetings with Q&As. So I think the, the key thing in terms of the culture is a combination of a lot more communication and then uh, clarity in terms of, of where we're taking RMLD. So that was that's probably the culture piece. And, and the other thing that came into the culture piece also, as, a, as an electric utility, this work is in-person as we, you know, we think about it as being in-person. Uh, we don't do very much. We really don't do any remote work. Um, just there's so much interaction that happens between the line crews, between the data teams, between the billing teams, between the customer service teams, between the meter teams, um, and then the administrative teams, et cetera. In person just is faster communication. And being able to walk down the hall or short hallway conversations, um, it's just been much faster. But as a result of of maintaining the in-person, one of the things that we've done is we've uh, we're we're experimenting with a flexible work schedule. So everybody's you know home needs are a little bit different, family needs are a little bit different. So we've provided a, a mechanism. We've all worked together to create a mechanism that lets us get our work done, but allows people on a 
you know, week by week basis to either do four 10 hour days or do, there's more, always more work to be done, but just in terms of the core schedule, four tens or the traditional five, eight hour days or a mix of four nines and then a half day on Fridays, but trying to give people, um, team members flexibility to schedule yet at the same time be in person and at the same time um, make sure that we overlap so that there was a core team here, you know, during during core hours. I think that was another key piece in terms of uh, improving the culture. So I think the two the two key pieces for culture were uh, communication and just flexibility of, of schedules. So relative to the substation, you know, we're a, a New England utility. Um, we're, we're our service territory. We serve four towns. We have, have about a little over 30,000 meters. So we don't expect a lot more meter connections. You know, we might go up to 31,000 or 32,000, but our growth is really a load growth within customers. We have between uh, the, you know, roughly about half of our load is commercial industrial. And given the fact that as an MLP, our rates tend to be lower and are lower than than some of the uh, investor-owned utilities for a whole bunch of structural reasons. But nevertheless, um, there's a lot of interest and a lot of growth right now into our territory, particularly in the industrial side. And so one of the things that that we're doing, anticipating that growth and meeting, you know, meeting growth that we can see right now and what we expect is uh, upgrading substations and also building new substations. So as you guys probably imagine, as, you're, as the audience probably imagine, the substations are a pretty significant Project. So we have one that we've uh, kicked off, and uh, our, our goal is to have it uh, be fully commissioned by uh, 2025, including hopefully we put enough enough buffer in for uh, supply chain issues for critical components. That takes time and effort, and obviously takes land, which in our uh, part of the country, um, you know, land is land is hard to come by, um, particularly where you need to put uh, equipment, et cetera. So that's that's one thing that um, has been pretty interesting. And then you know the other thing that 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 kind of led into um, that substation is in one of our municipalities. Uh, I mean, in one of our, uh, well, one of the towns that we serve, the one that happens to have the larger commercial and industrial growth. And one of the things that we've done with them is, um, you know, going back to the comment I made earlier about improved communication within Ready Municipalite, within RMLD amongst the employees, but the same thing of doing a lot more communication to the leadership of the various towns. And in the particular case of Wilmington, a lot of it, a lot of discussions and interactions with them relative to the substation, the placement of the substation, the timing, um, working with the various departments on permits, et cetera. But it's led us to some other opportunities, um, particularly relative to land, to create some opportunities for us to do what we'll call within territory generation. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But that, um, you know, one of the things that it's kind of you know new that the board recognized is the increased coordination and cooperation and communication and actually getting stuff done with the local towns um so i wanted to switch gears here and talk about reliability yeah as you know earlier this year um the utility received a certificate of excellence and reliability from appa and this marks the sixth consecutive year the utilities earned this recognition. Yes. So um, something obviously to be proud of. So could you talk about the steps uh, the utilities taken to maintain high levels of reliability? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, we, we look at our charter. So we're, uh, you know, like many public power um, entities, uh, utilities, you know, our basic charter is reliable, low cost, non-carbon, where reliable is the first piece. So that reliability is is critically important. And it, 
And before I even jump into the reliability piece, you know, always for both employees, team members, and customers, you know, safety is always the foundational piece. But on that, on that safety piece, reliability is a critical things that our our customers, you know, the the ratepayers that we serve, um, have come to expect out of us. And so we've made a lot of improvements over the past eight years. The the, the couple of key elements that drove that one, you know, is feedback and data. Um, so we, you know, eight years ago, our reliability was not particularly great. Um, and it was, so what we ended up doing was uh, we started with a, a variety of different um, studies, you know, getting feedback in terms of, of where there are problems. Um, we've continued those different studies relative to, you know, particular elements, communication within the network, volt VAR studies for our capacitor systems, uh, substation capacity studies, hosting capacity studies for adding solar and battery systems to our, our network. So a fair amount, we started early on and we've continued with providing uh, analysis and data and studies. The the second big piece is we put in a, um, a maintenance program. There's four key things here that are the second big category. A maintenance program, and I'll talk about each one of these in a little bit more detail, moving our distribution network from 4K to 13.8 KV, and then also laying out a, a technology roadmap. And then, uh, as we just mentioned a few moments ago, uh, a, a plan for ongoing reliability metrics and measurements. That that first piece, um, the maintenance, is really critical. There's a there's a again, we're very like most utilities. We're we're a group of uh, data people, um, engineers. We we focus on data and organizations. So we have a 10 point maintenance program. It starts with the substation. It works through transformers, distribution network, all the way through poles, through communication channels. But in each case, what we've done in terms of increasing our reliability is more specific inspections, more specific testing, a uh, more frequent um, interval testing, testing and, and observing, you know, making it part of uh, everybody in the field, the line, starting with the linemen, um, bringing information back, you know, using using pictures as well as descriptions, as well as um, voice records to uh, make it easier for the people in the field to report uh, observations back. But in each one of those systems, whether it's, you know, substations, transformers, poles, et cetera, that uh, very specific combination of visual as well as uh, uh, electrical, as well as mechanical, as well as uh, infrared testing. So that's one key piece. As an example, on the transformer site, for example, we um, we put together a transformer scorecard. The transformer scorecard was basically um, focused on not only the load, but the physical condition as well as the age. And then we we've gone through. Well, we're not we're still in the process of, but we have a, a an ongoing transformer upgrade program, and we'll make adjustments each year in terms of reprioritizing some of the transformers based on load increasing in certain areas um, faster than we would expect it. But there's that 10-point program that is, is one of the four key pieces of our RP3, our, our, uh, our, our uh, reliability piece. I already mentioned before just the 4K to 13KV. It has a lot of benefits, a lot of benefits to it, but uh, we're, we're almost finished phasing out the last of our 4K um, program, and we're adding more and more 34.5 kV parts of our distribution network, including what gets uh, what's coming out of our new substation. Um, we mentioned some of the reliability studies already. 
And then the technology roadmap, again, a little bit more automation. Well, I shouldn't say a little bit more, more automation, um, anticipating from a reliability network, bi-directional distribution network, um, a lot more sensors on the network to know what's going on. It ties back into, so we, we have our uh, control center, our operations control center, manned 24-7. Um, a lot of data coming into that, starting with uh, we're on our second generation of AMI system, for example, um, updated SCADA system. We've uh, we implemented um, an outage management system, an OMS system, and we're in the process of putting together, as an example of going back to reliability, having the customer involved as well. So uh, uh, not only a, a web updating our web page, but also putting together a mobile app as well. So. A lot more communication, a lot more data is some of the key pieces that go into uh, improving our reliability as well as handling the uh, the increased load. That's a that was a great overview. Um, one follow up question uh, occurred to me. So as you know, obviously we're winter's right around the corner. Anything that you guys are concerned about or are keeping an eye on as it relates to the region heading into the winter months? I guess, yeah, so two things. One is, you know, one of the things that we set down as a group, we do the each each year, but in the summer months and the, the fall, particularly when we're doing regular maintenance and we're doing upgrades to the system, but we always remind ourselves, particularly the guys in the field, you know, imagine as you're putting the system together, as you're doing the connections, as you're installing the transformers, the switch gear, et cetera, you know, imagine it is uh, 15 degrees outside, it's two o'clock in the morning, um, and the snow is coming down or, or maybe wet rain if it's a little bit warmer. So we just we try and always think about how, you know, when we come back, like do it right the first time, but we have to come back to a particular installation or a particular site. You know, how would I do this a little bit differently if I know it's going to be very inclement weather? So we try and plan for that. And we have four seasons up here. We're, we're a suburb of Boston. Uh, the other piece that is a little bit less in our control, you know, given given this energy world is most of our uh, as most of your podcast listeners know, it is has turned from a very regional business to a very international business. And here in New England, we are uh, we are feeling that. So depending upon, so some of our um, you know winter reliability from a fuel perspective is something that is that is of concerning to us in the region. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about some strategies that we're taking in the long term to address those things. But uh, in this year. You know, given where we are right now, we don't expect any significant problems. We'd have to have extended cold weather for that to be an issue. But nevertheless, fuel reliability um, is something that we watch carefully. Um, and as a region, in coordination with the other MLPs, there's 41 municipal light plants or public power entities just within Massachusetts. You know, we've got um, uh, numerous ones in the adjoining New England states, but we all try and work closely with with ISO New England to look at those issues, but that's a that's a regional issue that we don't have as much control over, but we are putting together, well, we're dusting off our plans, I should say, um, in case we have to do any sort of rolling blackouts, but we don't we don't expect those and we're, we're just trying to be ready for those. So with respect to the utilities um, energy supply portfolio and, and doing research for uh, this interview and preparing for it, one of the things that jumped out at me is the fact that the utilities um, pursuing efforts to decarbonize that portfolio. Could you offer additional details on that effort? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that happened in, in uh, New England in 2021 was a, a Senate bill, well, it was a, a joint a legislative bill called S9. We affectionately call it the 2021 climate bill, but it had some significant implications for us 
as an MLP, and for that matter, anybody providing electricity in the region, but had a lot of impact for MLPs. And it actually created some compliance obligations that we historically had not had that, that only applied to the IOUs. The big, the big changes that it drove uh, is it set targets in 2030, 24, well, it sent a baseline in 2020, and then targets in 2030, 2040, and 2050 of 50%, 75%, and net zero by 2050 in terms of non-carbon um, energy. The, re- the way for that to happen, there's two big chunks or two big segments of, uh, of our state. One is transportation, and then one is buildings or building envelopes. So in the case of transportation, um, similar to what we understand is happening in California at 2035. That'll be the last year that light-duty vehicles with internal combustion engines can be sold. Um, thereafter, um, uh, internal combustion engines for light-duty vehicles will not allowed to be sold. Um, so that's obviously accelerating the adoption of electric vehicles as one option. Um, a more That's probably a more, a more likely outcome for New England, EVs, electric vehicles. The second thing on the building side is moving from natural gas and oil-based heat, which are more common here. About half of, well, more than half of uh, buildings are heated by either natural, well, primarily by natural gas or or fuel oil. Um, And those will be phased out as well over the next 25, 30 years with those different targets. Um, Obviously, the, I shouldn't say obviously, the, the, the alternative energy source is going to be electricity, which, uh, uh, obviously, looks they look to us to provide that energy. And the other thing that they've done, going back to your question, is the portfolio, is that sales back to the 50%, 75%, and 100% need to be those percentages of non-carbon in those, in, in those uh, checkpoints, um, 2030, 2040, 2050. What we've done at RMLD, Ready Municipal Light, is we basically, to avoid any sort of rate shock to kind of work, you know, I'll say gradually bring our our rate payers, our customers to be more and more non-carbon is we basically assumed, we not only assumed, we were already at 20% in uh, in excess of 20% in 2020. But as we go to 2030, that 50% target, we've got 10 years to hit 30%. So each year we basically increase our target by three percentage points. Now, for us as Ready Municipal Light, one of the things that we have done consistently um, is that we have purchased certificates, you know, what typically are known as RECs, but we'll call them certificates because they also include EFECs, um, emission-free um, certificates, which come from the, there's a there's two, there's three remaining reactors, there's two across two facilities in terms of nuclear. Um, there used to be a significant amount more, but that's all that is remains in New England, but those effects um, also apply to compliance. And what we do at RMLD is we buy these certificates, we call them associated certificates, but we buy them with the power. We tend not to trade on the open market to buy and sell um, certificates. Well, we sell some, but we don't buy them for our compliance obligations. So we buy associate certificates. We've uh, we've increased our, our nuclear portfolio from about 15%. We're on track to bring that portfolio up in the next five years up to uh, roughly around 30%. And then the balance to be um, a variety of intermittent. So we still, as you look, we're over in 2023, we'll be over 60% non-carbon. Um, including nuclear. The non-carbon for us are primarily hydro and then solar and then wind. 
wind is still developing in our in our region. Um, they're not, you know, it's still a small portion of the regional portfolio. It's a small portion of our portfolio, but we we have the ability and we have done a series of long-term contracts for not only wind, but also solar. Um, solar is in the process of being built out in our territory. Um, we're a more northern climate. Um, so we have to be a little more creative in terms of how solar arrays are, are positioned. We have a fair amount of trees and we don't have quite as much land as you might find out west. But nevertheless, solar is an important part of the portfolio. But hydro is another piece. Now, it's not large scale hydro projects. They're, they're a smaller scale one. So we've worked aggressively, particularly over the past two years, to, uh, to increase hydro in our portfolio across a variety of different um, you know, geographies so that um, you know, if there's a problem in one area, it doesn't, it doesn't constrict another area, at least theoretically. In this year, 2020, in the upcoming year, 2023, um, hydro will be small, you know, small size hydro will be in the range of 23 to 25% of our portfolio. The other thing that we do is, is in order to meet that compliance, you meet the compliance by retiring certificates. So we retire certificates, what we call below the line. It'll be, you know, each year we go from three percentage points up. So we retire uh, an additional set of certificates and then we sell the other, the balance. The other thing that we do, Paul, is we also have what we call a renewable choice program. And so what we allow customers to do, whether residential or commercial or industrial, and it's particularly um, of interest from the industrials and the commercials that are that are national and international change where they have ESG compliance obligations. But if our portfolio is not uh, either renewable enough or not non-carbon enough, um, they can they can contribute to a fund where we retire additional certificates um, on their behalf. So we've done quite a bit of work to not only make the portfolio with associated certificates more non-carbon, um, but also to allow our customers to participate in that, what we call above the line. So I, I did have two follow-up questions. I'll take them one at a time. Um, sure. One of the things that, that jumped to my mind in, in relation to this, the topic of your portfolio and, and renewables specifically is, uh, you know, utility scale energy storage. Is that something that you guys have looked at or thought about? Oh, very much so. So a, a couple of things. So we're, um, RMLD is, depending uh, on how you measure, either the largest or among the largest, there's two of us that are particularly large um, MLPs. Now, when you say large MLP, we're about $110 million. Um, our sales are just under 700,000 megawatt hours a year. Our peak loads are about 165, just to put things in perspective. So for some of, so, so for many of the customers, um, we're on a smaller scale. But we serve about 30,000 customers, and uh, and going back to the reliability piece, our view is that we want to have more within territory generation to the extent we possibly can. So we're we're very aggressive in terms of incentives associated with not only for EV adoption, incentives for air source heat pumps, but also incentives for solar. And um, as as you know, and many of your listeners know, there's a there's a the recent regulation has created an opportunity for us as public power to get access to additional funds that uh, through ITCs, investment tax credits and production tax credits that we never had access to, or at least we never had direct access to. For going back to the reliability piece, going back to the goal to be more non-carbon, to drive, to, to, to reduce upward pressure on the economics. For us, when I talk about economics, 40% of our cost structure is capacity and transmission cost. And when we do within territory, 
we don't incur the transmission and capacity cost if it's within territory. So there's a there's a strong incentive for us to the extent we can with limited land, as I mentioned before, to uh, to do within territory generation, but also not do generation that is natural gas based or fossil fuel based, which is which is predominant in our territory. So it's a it's a fascinating puzzle. Solar is a, is a piece of it. And back to your question of storage. Uh, we we three years ago, uh, almost three and a half years ago now, we put in our initial um, battery storage system. Um, it was a five megawatt, two hour system. Um, we have an RFP out right now for another 40 megawatts. That would be, we'll call it utility scale. And then we're also looking, given the fact that we have two transmission lines crisscrossing, we have more than that, but we have two different transmission companies crisscrossing our territory. We are we are actually looking at the opportunity to do uh, you know, on the wholesale side of the distribution grid to do uh, storage as well. So storage is a, a critical component of it. Obviously, as you know, and and uh, many of your, your listeners know, um, storage is, is undergoing some transitions as well. So we're trying to figure out that balance of what do we do through PPAs to, to allow some of the risk to uh, sit with investors? And what do we want to do that is rate payer owned, where we're more comfortable in terms of taking risk? And obviously, you know, as I mentioned before, our charter is reliable, low cost, non-carbon in that priority. Low cost is the second key objective. So we always look at the economics of how we, of how we make this transition as economical for our ratepayers, because obviously we're a public power utility. So yes, storage is critical, as is uh, as is intermittent and part of our growth strategy. One of the other things that, that uh, caught my ear in terms of your your initial response to the last question was in in reference to renewable energy certificates. You noted the fact that the utility tends not to buy those recs on the open market. I was just curious, why is that? Is it just a unpredictability thing, or I'm just curious. no, no, no. We 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 established a so we we've accelerated a strategy that we. We we started uh, quite some time ago, and that is when we buy renewable energy, we wanted to we want to buy the the certificates with them, as Got opposed it. to just buying just the energy and not the certificates. Okay. Um. Obviously, over the past well past couple of years, and in, in case of Massachusetts, the value of those certificates so the value is going to change or is in the process of changing. They're all over the place, but at the end of the day, by the time you get to 2030. MLPs will be limited in terms of their ability to buy open market. So we're actually, and we tend to do long-term contracts, which as an MLP, we're able to do. Strategically at this point, um, we buy associated certificates. And then what we don't use will, you know, we don't need to retire in order to meet our compliance obligations, we'll sell. But we we have yet to buy on the open market. Now, at some point that might change 10 years or 15 years out from now. But our goal is to always purchase um, the the RECs or the certificates with the power as a strategy. Okay, makes sense. And just yep. uh, another quick follow-up on that RFP mentioned for storage. It's outstanding at this point. Any Can you provide any details on, on kind of the next steps and the calendar for that? So we'll be getting feedback later on um, before the year's over. We'll be making some decisions. We're looking at a variety of different technologies. We actually we already have one project that uh, is is uh, under development and should be online. Another 10 megawatt, two-hour system that should be online um, in Q4 of 2023. And then the schedule is to have big chunks in 2024 and 2025. And, and as an example, Paul, you know, one of the things we did with our substation is we designed the substation, we did the configuration to allow it to have storage 
uh, being built on the same site as a substation as well. So we're, we're trying to build flexibility into our network. We, as I mentioned earlier, we realize that our network needs to be bi-directional and that obviously, you know, the wires can handle that already in transformers, but just in terms of how we configure it, um, how we uh, how we create loops in the network as we build things out. Again, reliability remains first and foremost, and, and storage is going to be a piece of it, but also how we configure it. And, and just to wrap up, wanted to get your insights or, or details on your, your long-term goals as head of RMLD. Yeah, so a, a couple of things in terms of long-term goals. One of the critical pieces, as we've mentioned before, which ties to reliability and economics, is within territory generation. So given that we don't have a lot of land, we have to think creatively. Um, we, it is unlikely that we'll have uh, any, any wind towers in our, in our territory. Uh, there's only so much availability of, of area, whether it's rooftops or parking lot canopies or you know, the, the last of the, the landfills to put solar in place. We're gonna do everything we possibly can from that perspective. And we're going to try and use as much grant funding as we can to make that happen, again, from the benefit of our ratepayers in terms of, of low cost. But we're also trying to think out of the box in terms of doing some experimentation with, with uh, hydrogen systems. We're doing some experimentation with what we call low temperature geothermal. New England is uh, doesn't have any, it's not like uh, the western part of the states or, or northern Europe where uh, we've got uh, uh, hot springs. Uh, near the surface. Uh, we sit on a big block of granite. So we're thinking creatively in terms of how to do uh, low temperature geothermal. Um, that's uh, in the experimentation phase. And in all of these different projects, Paul, we try and work with uh, academics. So we've got a lot of university talent um, in the Boston area. So we've got some projects running there. We've got a very involved Department of Energy Resources at, at the state level. And uh, you know the engineers that we are recruiting uh, the data people that we are recruiting are ones that think out of the box. Um, there's no cookie cutter. Um, so we we all look at this as an incredible opportunity to build, we'll call it the, a new, the new RMLD, we'll call it a new electric utility, given the constraints that uh, we're under. But, you know, we don't look at these constraints as problems. We look at them, and I, I say this with a smile, but I mean it sincerely, it, it, is that this is a fascinating problem to solve. So I think in terms of the long-term piece, the two big trends are within territory generation, and then the other piece is data. And and in fact, we uh, we created a position recently. Um, we call it enterprise data. It is different than IT. It is it is different than uh, the finance and the billing people. Um, it is one that's helping us to uh, orchestrate and organize the data that comes back from the field. I mentioned the feedback that comes back from the line teams, the line crews. Um, data that comes back from the meters, um, data that comes back from all the generation sources. And, and as you know, right, so customers buy power on a on an hourly basis or their build power on an hourly basis. We want to provide them feedback to manage their load, to, to change their behaviors, to adapt and adjust. Um, so we want to provide them not only with the tools like mobile apps, et cetera, um, but also with the data. So data is a critical portion. And then on the power supply side, data is also important in that traditionally, you know, we buy power in blocks, right? It'd be weekends, on peak, off peak. And now with much more intermittent resources, a lot more of the renewables, um, we need to think about this on an hourly basis or maybe even a 15-minute basis. All that is driving data. So the other big long-term goal is to make us much more data-centric and not data for data's sake, but to be able to allow us and equally importantly, our customers, the ratepayers, to use that data to make decisions 
at some point, there'll be more intelligence built into not only our network, um, but also the customer's hands. So they can set the parameters and what I'll call the auto button, um, uh, A-U-T-O, automatic button, which is, okay, this is what I, this is how I want my system, my, my load to run. You know, it'll, it'll basically allow that to happen. And then the third and probably last point is we're thinking, particularly in the context of electric vehicles, you know, traditionally meters were tied to a side of a building. And and our our analogy, um, this, this I don't think this is a you know a radically new thought, but it's it's uh, something that we're really really digging into, is the uh, the idea that meters are going to become mobile. And when I say that, I think about electric vehicles. And for us, an average customer, an average residential customer, is about 820 kWh per month. An electric vehicle, just a single electric vehicle that drives a little over 12,000 miles a year, is about 360 kWh a month. So not quite half, but um, pretty significant. And so if I'm going to go visit a friend of mine for dinner or whatever, and I'm low on juice and I want to plug into their level two charger that's attached to the side of their house, um, you know, they, they'll probably say, okay, but we envision a world where where I can go to that house, you know, my friend's house, and while we're having dinner or socializing or watching a Saturday or Sunday football game, I can be charging my vehicle, but having it billed to my account, not my friend's account. So that idea of mobile meters is something that we're still playing around with and developing, which is a little bit longer term, and it goes back to the concept of data. So within territory is critical, um, data is critical, and then the third big piece is the concept of mobile meters as opposed to stationary ones, which, you know, our whole industry has been based on meters built to the side of the, of the building. And then the last and fourth piece, Paul, is is that all of this requires people that think out of the box, and which goes back to your original question of culture. And so really trying to drive communication, here's the long-term vision, engage the team members, recruit new team members that are interested in, in building something different, not for the sake of being different, but for, this, for, the, for the benefit of the ratepayers. But we're, we're literally building the context of which we're operating is mandates it. But we look at it as an opportunity from a, from a, from a team perspective to do something just out of the box. This is a unique opportunity for, for many people in their careers to build something new that had never been done before. Hope that helps. Oh, absolutely. So one Follow-up, though, I mean, something that's always struck me as as we see continued growth of electric vehicles nationwide is, it, it seems to me that goes without saying that when you talk about things like mobile meters in 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 relation to EVs, that mm-hmm. um, customer buy-in and and more specifically customer education about how do you leverage these EVs to maximize its benefits is going to be crucial. Um, So what are you guys thinking about in in that area in terms of getting buy-in and education for your customers? Yeah, great, great question. So we have the benefit of having a a communication manager that's linked to our customer service team. So, and we do do regular webinars. So we do quarterly webinars right now. We do a monthly newsletters. We're trying to do more and more outreach to the customer. So um, one key thread, as you talked about, is communication and education to the customer, critically, critically important. You know, this isn't going to happen overnight, but we've already started um, in terms of being aggressive in terms of outbound communication. And then the second piece is to make it easy and convenient for the customers, right? So 
most of our customers have a mobile phone. Not that a mobile phone is the end-all be-all, but it's a it's an interface device that that might work for several. Um, many of them have uh, computers. We still have a good group that that still re, still relies on mail. Um, so we we put packages in in those you know etc. But a lot more communi- you know more more specific communication and making it easier for the customers to learn. And then the second piece is we we've had and we are. We are extending our time of use program. In fact, we're we're in the process of releasing a time of use rate, and we've been working on it for a little bit of while. Really trying to think through not only the the initial wave, but you know what it looked like in two or three or five years down the road. At the end of the day, when we talk about EVs, because EVs are new, unlike dishwashers and clothes dryers and all that kind of stuff, where people have them and and we're encouraging them to change how they use them. Electric vehicle charging is something that is yet to be learned. There's still there's lots out here. Don't get me wrong, but it's still very early in our in our territory. We estimate about forty five thousand vehicles, and there are less than a thousand EVs in our territory. So our our goal with the rates is to encourage the time at which our customers charge, and then also to be aware of what it costs them to charge at different points in time. EVs have proven to be, uh, at least in our territory, um, less expensive from an operating perspective, but we also want to be very careful in terms of uh, load management um, of our network of when they charge. And so we don't want to restrict when our customers charge, but you know, charging at different times of the day has different values. So we're trying to keep it simple, but also let them know that that uh, it costs different time it costs different amounts to charge at different times. So we're trying to find that nice balance of uh, of simple and convenient yet allows them to change their behavior. Hope that helps. Absolutely. So Greg, I, I'm sure you have a lot on your plate these days, so I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. It's been a very informative conversation and um, I'd love to have you back at some point next year. We can kind of revisit some of these topics and perhaps uh, discuss others. Um, so thanks again for taking the time. Paul, my pleasure. I'm totally enjoying it. So thank you. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now. We're encouraging listeners of Public Power Now to take a few minutes to complete APPA's new reader survey, which seats feedback on this podcast as well as other APPA news offerings. Go to publicpower.org slash reader survey. I'm Paul Champoli. We'll be back soon with more from the world of public power. Mm-hmm.